Good morning, everybody. Chief Ryan Landrum at the U.S. Border Patrol Academy, coming to you with another episode of the What's Important Now podcast. There are times uh, throughout our career where individuals uh, have the ability to impact you as a person. And there are times in the Border Patrol where an individual has the uh, ability to impact many people, thousands of people, uh, as, as uh, the way they, that person conducts themselves, the way that person leads, the way that person treats other people. Today I have the opportunity to introduce you to Julie Gallagher Maroney, a supervisory Border Patrol agent, course developer instructor at the Law Enforcement Safety and Compliance Directorate in Harpers Ferry, West Virginia. Julie, welcome. Hey. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Excellent. So there's a lot to talk about with uh, Julie Gallagher. Obviously, your you know full legal name is Julie Gallagher Maroney, but uh, I think everybody in the U.S. Border Patrol that, that knows you uh, knows you as Julie Gallagher, and that's really important for several reasons that we'll kind of dive into uh, over the over the uh, course of our conversation today. But I kind of want to start off with talking about your upbringing a little bit, right? So you uh, are from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Not Lancaster, but Lancaster, Lancaster, yeah. Lancaster Pennsylvania. Uh, and you attended Temple University mm-hmm. in the late 90s. During that time where you're studying criminal justice uh, at, at Temple University, you're also a competitive collegiate athlete in the gymnastics arena. Why don't you uh, tell me a little bit about your time there at Temple and then your time at, on, in, on the floor of uh, the gymnastics world? Sure. So... Um, I grew up kind of close to Temple University. It wasn't necessarily in my, under my radar that I would ever be a collegiate athlete, but I had started gymnastics at a young age, and I loved the sport. I took to it well. I really loved the athleticism behind it, and it was just a sport that really stuck with me. Um, as I got closer to looking at college, um, there seemed to be an opportunity there to compete, I had gotten away from the sport a little bit towards the end of my high school, which kept me from being recruited. Um, so, I, so I went to the toward the university. I talked to the coaches, and they encouraged me to walk on. Uh, they said I could do uh, just a few events. I didn't have to do all the events. And I thought, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a try again. I love the sport so much, and I just got away from it for a little bit. Um, and that's what I did. I, I ended up competing for the team um, in vault and on even bars. Nice. Um, but they ended up giving me a scholarship uh, while I was there. Well, so. Congratulations on that. Thanks. Um, I want to talk about a little bit about competing. This, this probably plays out uh, over the course of your career, especially as we uh, kind of go into um, entering into the ranks of the U.S. Border Patrol and then what you do after that. How important is competition at that level to kind of drive who you became over time? I don't even know if it was competition. I think it was more the team and the teamwork aspect of it that really drove me. You're, You're there. You're not, especially at the collegiate level, you're not competing for yourself. You're competing for your school or you're competing for your team and with your team, and you're representing your school all over the country. So that was uh, that was probably the biggest takeaway from from being a collegiate athlete. I think uh, that's that's uh, perfectly said. So your final year of college, you get this internship with the uh, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Mm-hmm. Where was that, and how does this uh, eventually walk you down the path of uh, law enforcement, federal law enforcement? Yeah, it really, it really did. It was definitely the door because I, I wasn't a hundred percent sure. You know, you're you're always kind of question your career path a little bit. Like, oh, am I? Is law enforcement something I want to do? I think it's what I want to do, but how do you know until you do it? Um, so, I was at the ETF. I, I worked with this really great group of men and women, and they started to um, talk to me about applying for other agencies. Like, what did I want to do? Where did I want to go? At the time, ETF was not hiring, um, and I, <laughs> they started talking amongst each other about different agencies that were currently hiring. This was in two thousand. And they're talking to each other, and one of them brings up the Border Patrol. But they don't bring it up, like, in a good way. They bring it up in a way, like, the Border Patrol is, like, no, you don't want to do the Border Patrol. It's crazy. You go to the academy, and they run you to the ground, and you get hurt. Like, it was, like, not, it was more, it was, like, a challenge. It was came across as a challenge. Like, it's one of the hardest academies in law enforcement, 
and I don't know that you know you would even want to live out in the in the west and I was like well in my mind I had been out west once and I'm like I absolutely want to move I would love to live out west I am absolutely up for a physical challenge this sounds like a really good thing to explore so during 2000 there wasn't like google didn't exist (laughs) it was like i think an internet was still kind of new so i did uh i i was able to search it somehow on the computer i think it was like lexus nexus or something oh yeah yeah and um it came up and they were hiring so i i dropped my name in the hat and the next thing i know um in this little room in philadelphia with 13 other people taking a test and i passed it and i mean it goes from there um i graduated that may and then i was hired the, that january so you graduate from temple in may mm-hmm. and you spend six months uh, preparing for the u.s virtual academy <laughs> yeah, and, yes. and then you uh, enter uh, on duty yeah. with the 463rd session uh, that uh, took you to the naco arizona station so you go from lancaster to naco yeah. So you wanted to go out west, and uh, that it. might be uh, ground central for west there in Naco. So tell me a little bit about Naco. Um, Naco, it was so I lived in Sierra Vista, and it was it was a great experience. Uh, the traffic was great; it was busy, and yeah. as soon it, it didn't take long. Like when I was at the academy, I I didn't really, I still didn't really understand the job or right. what I would actually be doing. And I'm sure it was the same for you. Oh yeah, for you, like back then. I was just trying to survive. Yeah, you're I was just trying to graduate. Trying, yeah, <laughs> and then I'll figure the rest out. Yeah, when I get there. <laughs> like I just want to make sure I pass my law test. Right. Like I don't, I don't know what I'm actually going to be doing when I get to the field. So I get to the field, I get into my, um, the field training unit, and I mean, it didn't take long before I was like, this is like amazing. This is a job for me, being outdoors, getting to hike, um, going after bad guys. It was like, it was awesome. Yeah, so Jason uh, Owens, former chief of the academy, and I had the same conversation when when he interviewed me as I was uh, assuming command of the the academy, and we talked a little bit about uh, what my intent was. And I was like, you know what? I, I had every intention of coming to the U.S. I was 18 years old, came in the U.S. Border Patrol, and I was going to go to a three-letter agency, ATF, DEA, FBI. Didn't really matter. I was going to get the degree and and move on. Then I got to do the job. Yeah. Right. Then I got to do the job mm-hmm. with the people that we do the job with. Mm-hmm. And yeah. until you, you know, it, there's. You know, we, you and I can sit here and talk about it and talk about the spirit of core, uh, the the camaraderie and everything that comes along with it. But uh, once you've actually walked that mile, literally and figuratively, uh, with the people that that you're asked to do this job with, you, you get bitten by that bug, and it's hard to even come out yep. of it. So, yep. so you you um, you graduate the four sixty third. You go to Naco, and in December of two thousand and two. You successfully completed the Borstar Basic Academy as a member of Class Six. There's kind of a lot to unpack there. First of all, it's really, really young in your career. That's that is mm-hmm. amazing. Um, so tell me a little bit about that. Tell me a little bit about why Class Six was really important. I think this is where we start to standardize the way we look at our special operations groups yep. uh, as a group and how we uh, kind of apply some methodology to the training mm-hmm. and then kind of form yep. these teams exactly. over time. And then uh, tell me about being a female going through these uh, these rigorous training and and something that that previously uh, and arguably was held just for males mm-hmm. yeah yeah so the Borstar idea or the Borstar team came kind of under my radar when I was just finishing up at the Border Patrol Academy and there were some guys that were some of the PT and so I was a standout in the in PT yeah. um, so it was definitely the, my favorite thing of the day I wasn't I'm much more like a physical person versus an academic person, uh, you know. But um, they kind of pulled me to the side right before I graduated and said, we have a team called Borstar. It's a very physically challenging uh, process, academy. You might want to look into it once you're, you've made it to the point where you would qualify to, to apply. So I said, okay, cool, and I kind of forgot about it and just went on about being an agent and then the buzz around Borstar, I guess there was a, an academy coming up uh, in 2002. Um, I started to hear a little bit more about it, and then I started to prepare for it. I started to talk to some people that were um, current members or former members, and and I put a memo in. I was not quite at my two years, but I thought to myself, 
I'm close. Yeah. I mean, the worst he can do, I'll do the memo. And the worst he can do is I'll just kick my memo back and I'll just go back to the scope team. I was having so much fun. It didn't matter to me if, if they accepted me that time or uh, for the next class. Mm-hmm. But my, my memo went through. <laughs> so I'm like, next thing I know, I'm doing the, the PT test and doing the, the field evaluation in Tucson. Then I was invited to the academy and then I was a member of the team. Awesome. And it was 30 days of, it was undoubtedly, it was hard. I think one of the hardest things for me was I didn't know what it was like to fall out of runs or fall out of reps. <laughs> and it's very humbling when you're being PT'd and you really, you have to do, like I did more push-ups than I ever thought, I think I've probably ever done in my life in those 30 days. Yeah. And you just get pushed to a point. You just keep going. The idea is you have to keep going through it. You just, you don't give up. Right. And you don't quit. And you know what? It stinks. Like, like, you know, struggling through push-ups or struggling through a a hard run. But at the end of the day, you know, these teams, you don't want people that are going to quit when things get hard. Yeah. So, uh, great, great story. A couple of things to unpack right there. Um, number one, you didn't put yourself in a box in a box because you said, you know, they, you, you read the, the, solicita- the solicitation memo. And back in the day when she's talking about two years, you had to have two years as a border patrol agent, which qualified you for consideration to be a, uh, an operator, whether it be board attack or board star. And, um, from there, there's a whole selection process. But, uh, the, the point here is you did not take no for an answer necessarily. You did not limit yourself. And it's a great, it's a great story for folks that are um, out there considering things. If you want to be a dog handler, you want to go to SOG, you want to do uh, whatever, whatever interests you and you're really, really close and on the cusp, the worst you can do is apply and be told, no, it's that easy. <laughs> you know, what's the worst that can happen? <laughs> That's right. Nobody's going to look down on yeah. like, Hey, uh, sorry, you just didn't meet this uh, time requirement. Please try again in six months yeah. when it comes up and we'll mm-hmm. consider you. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Or you become Julie Gallagher and you you slide in. I think we talked about this. There were several classmates that were right on that you know yep. three-week-a-month class. Yeah. So it wasn't just you. There was yep. no special uh, accommodations for yeah. you. It was yeah. uh, folks that, you know, I think probably they, they looked at it and said, okay, she'll he or she will graduate by the time this uh, whole process is over and be well-tenured to uh, meet the requirements in terms of tenure for, uh, for, this, for this team. So that's number one. And then <clears throat> number two, you weren't the stud anymore, yeah. right? So yeah. it's a it's a great lesson when you want to talk about these SOG uh, uh, teams, right? This Bortac, Borstar, uh, et cetera, is um, what are you going to do when everybody else is just as good, as not, if not better yeah. than you? And the one thing that you can control is whether or not you quit, Yeah. right? So it's a good lesson for, for those folks that, uh, you know, we're talking about humility. We're talking about hard work, perseverance, preparation, readiness to do those things. Um, you've got to be committed and yeah, yeah. arguably committed mentally because physically mm-hmm. you oh, were a mental. stud. Oh, <laughs> mental. Yeah, it's the it's mental commitment right. in the end of. Yeah. yeah. I mean, nobody, you know, nobody trying out for these teams is probably not capable physically of doing these things. Mm-hmm. If you make it to the, to, to the levels that you're trying to go, it's just a matter of, are you going to quit yeah. when times get hard? And I think that's, you know, you should, you know, we should expect that out of our special operations group operators. Um, and that, you know, the, the return that we get on that, and that investment is really, really high for the, for the country. So you're, you, you're on the team, you're in class six. This is where we start to standardize the uh, application of a methodology for training in the special operations group, we start to actually coalesce and become a team. But before that, you go back out to Tucson. You graduate. This where did you go to the Borstar Academy at the time? It was on Fort Wachu- in Fort Huachuca okay. uh, in Sierra Vista. I didn't realize that at the time I was lucky to yeah. be like I was training in that high elevation. Right. And then the first national academy happened to be held in Sierra Vista at Fort Huachuca. So that was really cool. So I... I uh, in a, in a former life, uh, when I was a trainee, I heard uh, Chief Barker, Louis Barker, oh, yeah. may bring back some memories, but yes. uh, I won, uh, I was awarded Agent of the Year, and I said the exact same thing you just said. I said I got lucky, and he said, luck is when opportunity meets preparation. And I will never forget that. That was 21, 22 years oh, ago. Awesome. So, obviously, you were preparing yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you submitted your application to have the opportunity. You earned the opportunity, and... Uh, you won. <laughs> so that's luck was an opportunity meets yeah. preparation that applies to you too. Um, 
so you're doing at the time so you're training in tucson you're on the tucson team mm-hmm. and describe for me this is you know 2000 to probably 06 right where you're just operating what's the environment like and contextualize the flow of migration through tucson specifically at this time uh, against your requirements to keep people alive yeah. find them and keep them alive so it, the way Tucson Borsar was set up was really great, and I think it's still set up like this to this day. We had a new commander come into play, place as soon as my class came on. Uh, he was actually my classmate. And uh, he basically was like, all right, you guys go patrol the border, and then when you get call for the rescue, make sure you are available to answer that call. Um, so that was, his, that was his stipulation for you can go work your traffic, but you need to be available for, for Borsar calls. So it it was it was crazy. I I could not believe the thousands of people that were crossing every single day, and I couldn't believe all the people that were dying. I saw the first like couple of years, I, I there were so many body bags. I, I lost track of how many how many folks died out there. Um, so that was a, a summer of a lot of firsts, but that's kind of what you have to, you start, to, that's where you start getting that tough skin. Yeah. Um, seeing like the family units out there, the kids out there, um, all the medical calls, all the different rescues. I flew a ton with our, um, at the time there was the ABCI operation, 2005, 2006. Um, so all these helicopters and pilots were detailed in. So I was spending a lot of time in the air and on the ground, um, participating in search and rescue missions um, and in just regular, um, you know, Board of Patrol agent work, pulling up our vehicles, tracking out groups. Um, we were working seams. So we were between the Ajo and Casa Grande seam and between the Casa Grande and Tucson seam. So back then I have friends from all three of those stations and I feel like I was more of an agent, like a Tucson CAG agent. Like I was their adopted borser annoying sister <laughs> and I was like help me pull a vehicle over nice. <laughs> like help me with my bailout but yeah I, I think, got close to a lot of those agents out there I think uh, a couple of things there number one I, I like what you said up front you were a Border Patrol agent first. Mm-hmm. So, yes. yeah, you were on the Special Operations Group team or this SOD, Special Operations Detachment, as it, as it relates to being within the Tucson sector, uh, Special Operations Group being the national team in El Paso. But your requirements were to go out and, as you characterize it, work traffic, which is, you know, mm-hmm. do the things that we have been uh, asked to do, interdict uh you know, humans or, or, or narcotics coming across the border. And in Arizona at the time, there's plenty of each to, to do. And what it, what it does as from a border patrol agent's perspective is it doesn't create this, like I'm better than you scenario. Yeah. So you're in special operations group and you've got all this extra training. You're probably wearing a cool new uniform. Mm-hmm. You don't look like the rest yeah. of us, but you don't have this elite attitude where um, you don't have to do the same things that your brother or sister that you just mentioned yeah. has to actually do in the field. Yeah, and that was so important to me to yeah. not put myself above anybody else that was out there because I know like how it would it could come across and how sometimes that those impressions were yeah. there. And I always I know as I became more aware of that, I would try to always take a transport van out <laughs> so that if I wasn't doing anything, anytime I could help. Um, give like give back and help a Tucson or Casa Grande agent with anything. Like I was always trying to be very aware and do that for them. No, that's that's outstanding. And I think that sometimes you know special operations may or may not get a bad rap for some of these things. It, you know, you don't necessarily see the requirements that they have to perform whether to yeah. the, within a, a sector or a national. Uh, but at the same time, um, I think you know all the ones that I know have uh, always uh, subscribed to the, to the mantra that they're border patrol agents first, yeah, yeah. you know, despite what they're, what they're asked to do differently. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, you talk about, you know, you're asking your friends for help and you're actually, you want you wanted to make sure you demonstrated for them why, you know, you, you that you remembered you were an agent first. I think this kind of goes back to why I said like uh, in the beginning, you know, you as an individual have had an impact on people uh, generally throughout your entire career. And it's for things like that because you've never forgotten where you came from. And, um, you always remembered, where, you know, that you were an agent first. Um, so from there, let me let me ask you this: How many rescues do you think were for migrants against, say, American citizens? How much work did you do to kind of like? There's a whole 
host of people in this desert area, in this desert environment that require our assistance. Mm -hmm. So just because you're a border patrol agent doesn't mean you can't extend beyond the the lens of, you know, interdicting migration and apply your life-saving capabilities to an American citizen. Yeah, so we would partner, oftentimes, uh, Pima County Search and Rescue, they would tap into us, uh, our people and our assets, mm -hmm. to help them. Um, we did all kinds of things with them. One, Probably the most high-profile case I participated in was looking for, um, there was a little girl that went missing in Tucson. Um, they ended up finding her body years later. She was uh, six years old. And it was just like all oh, hands on deck. It was so nice just to be a part of that and to try to help um, with that search and rescue or that, you know, recovery um, mission. But. Yeah, it's a, it's a great frame. And we, we talk a lot about 21st century policing. What does that look like? Um, we can talk a lot about being... Um, warriors on the border and maybe that's a way that law enforcement used to be portrayed or used to act but moving forward we're looking at um how do we kind of round these edges off of being a warrior on the border but at the same time uh being a guardian um and then one of the, you know one of the ways in which to do that is the different different ways that we train uh, we start to uh, build relationships better in communities in which we serve mm -hmm. uh, be human um in, in terms of our interactions with other agencies and they will call you. Yep. They understand what you're about. They understand that at the core of your mission, you as a, as an operator for Borstar, you're about searching, finding, rescuing, saving mm -hmm. lives. So just to be called in a scenario where uh, a member of the community just so happens this was a six year old little girl mm -hmm. uh, that they wanted you guys to help yeah. is a, is kind of a reflection of who we try and portray ourselves as an organization. Yes. Um, you know, there's tons of media out there that that allows people to tell one side of the story or another. Mm -hmm. But at, at the end of the day, take it from an operator. Uh, we are trying to be the best of both warrior and guardian in our organization yes. today. Yeah. yeah. So after your time uh, spent in Tucson, the, the desert, the West Deserts and all of Tucson, um, you start going over to stand up the special operations group in El Paso mm -hmm. with, as, with, as it relates to Borstar. Yes. This was in uh, 2007 to 2010. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I just, uh, I, Tucson was so busy. We didn't get to do a lot of operational things outside of our sector because it was just, it, it, we had too much in our own backyard. And we were always having people come in and um, detail in to help us out. And I saw that as an opportunity to be able to do things to participate in Borsar from a, from a national level and to do things out of other sectors that I wouldn't have had the opportunity to do if I would have been an asset out of Tucson just simply because we were so busy. So being there allowed me to, I TDY'd like to, I don't, I don't know how many sectors, I think almost yeah. every sector wow. at one point doing a training mission or an operational mission. That's crazy. So you're, it's important to note here, you're still a board patrol agent, mm -hmm. right? And I, and I mean that in terms of you're not a supervisory board patrol agent yet. You're not a field operations nope. supervisor mm -hmm. or watch commander. You're operating at our journeyman level yep. because it meant that much to you. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it was important to me that I did, in my mind, I had things I wanted to do before I became a supervisor. And I wanted a certain level of field experience. And I, I had wanted to be a PT instructor. That was huge for me. So I, I did that, and I taught two classes. I spent 10 months in Artesia. And then I went to SOG because I wanted to um, do operations on a national, uh, in some cases, an international level. Right. And I knew I'd have to go to SOG if I wanted to do that. Yeah. So those were the boxes I really wanted to check off. For me personally, it was, those were the experiences I really wanted to have as a Border Patrol agent. And I, and I did it. Yeah, it's a, it's a super important story. Um, a lot you hear this often that the instructor cadre at the Border Patrol Academy throughout time, whether it's today or when you and I came through the Border Patrol Academy, there's always at least one person, and you know, arguably more than that, that um, impacts you in a really positive way, right? And maybe you want to give back to being instruct being an instructor at the academy or by being an instructor at the academy based on your interactions with that person or the, that group of people. Um, so while, while we talk about, you know, all the training that occurs here, um, I don't want to lose sight of the quality of people that are actually delivering that training and what it means to them. Um, I, I've said this oftentimes, uh, 
throughout the staff that I've been here for the first 60 days or so is I kind of underestimated that the board show Academy isn't the, the cadre's first stop. So everybody that's here came to chose to be here. They all came to be here. It's like going to advanced training. It's like going to the LESC. Mm-hmm. You chose to be there. So you apply yourself in different ways based on what drove you to that particular work. So I think it's, it's a really important story. And you got to fulfill that dream by coming back and, and giving back in the PT department by being an instructor for two classes. So that's good. And then from there, you go on to uh, actually uh, standing up the, uh, the this four-star team at, at SOG, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You got to check the box of PT. You get to check the box of standing up SOG and doing some international and national events. In 2010, you decide to that this is the time where I'm ready to become a supervisor. Yeah. You kind of blanket the country. Um, you're putting in for all kinds of border patrol agent supervisory positions. You're putting in for special operations group supervisory mm-hmm. positions, SODs, and Tucson calls. Tucson call. Right. Yep. And it definitely felt like that was... The next, I was definitely ready for that step in my career. I had, by that time, I had traveled so much. I, I, like I said, I'd really gotten everything I had wished for and wanted up to that point. And I thought, now, like, it sounds like cliche, but I'm like, this is like, if, if Borstar brings me on as a supervisor, it'll be, it'll be good. Like, because now I can give back. Because supervisors don't have as much fun as operators <laughs> or as agents, right? right? So, but then you get to a point where it's kind of like your time to, to do that and help yeah. the younger generation uh, come up. So it was, yeah, I was uh, coming up on 10 years and I thought, yeah, this will, this is good. By that time I had done a lot of acting supervisor and acting FOS work. Mm-hmm. Don't ask me how that happened. <laughs> like, it was kind of weird because the SOG didn't have supervisors. Right. They only had FOSs. Right. So when we would go into an acting position, we would jump up to an acting FOS. Right. That was just how it was structured at the time. Um, but yeah, I was ready to for that SBPA position and Tucson hired me in August of 2010. I got the call. Um, so- so at the same time, you also, um, for those of you know, you have a uh, brother who yeah. works in Tucson at the exact same time you're about to promote to supervisory yeah. border patrol agent and Julie's life is coming together. Yeah, it's right? coming together. You get it to was, uh, go back out to where yeah. you started. You get to reunite with family yep. and uh, you have a conversation with your brother, uh, late August, I think, where you're, you guys are talking about, mm-hmm. um, what where are you gonna live? What yeah, are you gonna do? I got I got the call and I <laughs> it was funny because he lived in Casa Grande mm-hmm. with his two kids and there's actually a home for sale next to him. And if you know me, I wouldn't. I okay. I need like a bigger city. <laughs> <laughs> I he's like you can buy the house next door. We'll be neighbors. And I was like, no, we won't. <laughs> we are gonna live in Tucson. But nice. it was just. It was a funny like kind of back and forth thing we had. But he was excited that I I had. Prior, when I was on at SOG, I had been detailing back there in the summers, so I had gotten to actually work with him a little bit wow. and do some patrols because he was he was assigned to Casa Grande, so that was an area I'd patrolled for years. Mm-hmm. So I would like kind of get in, like he would be ending mids and I'd be starting on days, and we'd get into I'd jump in his truck. I'd be like, show me something. Yeah. I mean, he'd like take me to like stash house or something, and we'd go check something out before he was ready to roll north back right. to his station. So th- those were really uh, special, fun times. Yeah. So yeah, like everything's in place. I think, and I, I think I have this path too, right? Like I'm like supervisor, and I started thinking in my mind, like maybe I could even be like a commander. Yeah. Like I could see that because yeah. I'd by that time I had already done some. Um, pretty big missions. I, someone had, <laughs> I had been given some really um, decent responsibilities yeah. um, at some decent missions, and I realized it gave me the confidence to realize that I could do um, things on a bigger scale. But yeah. I also knew the supervisor was the first box to check. Yeah, I think uh, just to kind of book in that particular piece, I would I would argue you earned the opportunity to do some really big missions based upon the work that you did, which is really mm-hmm. important. You didn't, you weren't really given anything; you earned a lot of everything. Um, so you get you're, you're talking to your brother. It's late late August, mm-hmm. and then on September second, you get a different call. Yeah, so September second was a call that you know I'll never forget. And it's, you know, anyone that's had something like really terrible and tragic and unexpected happen to them. And there's so many of us out there. 
Um, yeah, so I got to call that he had been in a crash, and um, it was something I was always concerned about because he always worked late, mm-hmm. and um, the cra- and in my mind, I had what happened, even though it wasn't what happened, but in my mind, I made up the story already about what had happened, and my focus was to get out to Tucson as quickly as possible. I just left. I was just on detail out there, and I had just left and gone back to El Paso. Um, so... Yeah, I got to call. He had been in a crash, and uh, yeah, I was trying to text my Borsar buddies were getting on scene, and I was trying to find out what was going on, and um, you know, trying to get all figure it all out. And uh, before I could even leave my house in El Paso, I found out he had passed. Yeah. So So. for context, your brother Mike, Michael V. Gallagher, was killed Mm -hmm. in line of duty uh, by a drunk driver uh, in 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 near Tucson, Arizona. And um, today we will never forget as, a, as an organization, as a family, but it's really a day you'll never forget either. Yeah. So um, your life's coming together, and then all of a sudden it's yeah. yanked apart. Yes. And I mean, I had to figure out where, where, you know, after the funeral, after everything, you know, subsides, it's like, you know, I I was like I I, can't, I don't know that I can even be a supervisor. Like, how do I how do I be a super? This is crazy. I can't even like. I don't know how I'm going to make it through a day and put on bars. I, I don't know that I'm ready for that. And my, I had a very, my parents were very supportive. I mean, it's like now that I'm a parent, I'm like, how did it, like, I remember my dad telling um, my direct, my uh, commander at the time, like, she just needs to get back out there. She needs to get out there and she needs to get out back out to the field. And uh, I don't know. I know I'm pretty sure he probably didn't want me to do that, yeah. but that's, he knew how much it meant to me. Yeah. and how much my career meant to me. Um, so I had a lot of support and encouragement from um, my dad especially to yeah. to get the boots back on and get out there. <laughs> um, for me, I, I had an EOD date. I had already been given an EOD date, and I just had pushed it up yeah. um, so that I could be out with my, um, my brother's widow and, her two, and the two kids. Yeah. So... The first six months was so hard. Um, I was someone recently asked me um, because there were some agents that were struggling through a hard loss, yeah. and I get to I get asked this a lot. Um, they say, "How did you do it?" Yeah. Well, anybody put in that position is going to do it. How you do it is going to look different, maybe, yeah. but you're not going to just collapse into a ball and die. Yeah. You have to wake up every day. You have to get dressed every day. You have people to live for. Um, and th- th- so there's never any question, how do I do it? I'm going to do it. Um, how did I do it as a supervisor? Uh, I didn't, the first month I was in Tucson, I don't think I went out to the field. Um, but I knew, I was like, I got it. Like, I'm going to have to get out there. And it was an internal thing. And I don't know if my teammates recognize it, but I think the first time I went out to the field after he died, I think I went, I might've went with somebody. I might've been like, so it was like kind of going back in. And then uh, pretty quickly, I'm like uh, just ripping the bandaid off. Like I got to make that drive out there. My brother was killed on a highway. I've, that's part of my patrol. Yeah. Um, so I've, if this is what I'm going to do, I got to do it. But I, in my mind, I gave myself a little grace. I was like, I'm going to give myself six months as a supervisor. And if I'm not good, if I'm not being good for my guys, then I'm not going to, I'll do something else. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to do something else. So that was like my, the way I set it up in my mind. I gave myself six months. And I'll, I'll tell you, like, I... The first six months, every time I drove out to the field when I was by myself, I cried. And I remember someone looked at me, and they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I cried. And someone hearing this might be like, oh, she shouldn't have been out in the field. But uh, I needed to do it. I needed to be out in the field. That was part of who I was. I had spent almost a decade out there, Mm -hmm. and it it was part of what I needed to do. Yeah. Hey, so... Excellent, excellent kind of walkthrough of how it impacted you. And, you know, I could not be more happy that you're still on our team. Um, you're salt of the earth, and you, the organization gave you the time and space to mm-hmm. uh, handle grieve appropriately. You did. And this is 10, 12 years ago now. Yeah. And 
I wouldn't say we're perfectly where we should be, but I think we're trying to get better every single day. At, at the same time, there you you made it, you made a comment about your board star buddies, your your new people, the people that essentially were going to work for you mm-hmm. were first on scene, right? They responded to the crash that took your brother's life. They did. They weren't first on scene, but they they showed up. Um, his classmates. He had two classmates that were first on scene. They were behind him. But yeah, my Borsar team. Um, I I know they they sporadically were showing up and trying to help. Right. So, as as the like, so they you have to now supervise the folks that go through this traumatic incident. That also, by the way, is near and dear to your heart. Mm. So, what does that look like? How do you take care of your team now? How do you how do you continue to lead and, 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 and make sure that their needs as they grieve are, are taken care of? I think but so back then I think it was too early for me. Like I was still I remember I was more focused on my brother's classmates that were first on scene. Yeah. Um but it took a, a little bit longer. To, because I was like in such a ball of grief like I wasn't a lot of times people I think would think I was angry at the drunk driver that killed my brother like I was I was so like sad and just the grief was so like overwhelming that I didn't have room to be angry and I don't know how much room I had for other people's grief because I was deal I was living with my brother's widow and and the boys so I wasn't outside looking outside the agency right at that time I would say I was still so internal with my parents my sister and his my brother's family um but as I would say it was maybe uh, once we maybe got past the trial, like once we get past, whenever you have somebody that dies tragically and then you got to deal with a court situation, right. it just prolongs like yeah. everything. Um, I think once we got outside of, of that, that's when I could start looking at, um, you know, the people that were affected and directly impacted by Mike's crash mm-hmm. and kind of checking in and seeing how they were doing, asking the, Asking the the chain of command in Tucson, what are we doing for them? What are we doing about the drinking? It's a huge issue on that on that on the tribal lands. Huge. Um, So you have a lot of you know you're you're dealing with a lot of grief. Uh, Your your team's dealing with a lot of grief. The family's dealing with a lot of grief. At the same time, you're also married. You have a husband. Tell me a little bit about that. My husband is. he is not a border patrol agent. He is not in law enforcement, but he's a huge supporter of law enforcement. Of course, he'd have to be right. And um, for for us, I think it was I think it was very hard for him. You know, he's in this. He's surrounded by nothing but grieving people. Could you imagine yeah. like what a rock he had to be? Yeah. Oh my goodness! And it, I tell you, it made me appreciate him in a way I never would have appreciated him had it not happened. That's awesome. Like it's like you want perspective on a <laughs> lot of different things. When something like that happens, it really has a way of shifting things into perspective. So you you spend this time grieving. You're addressing everybody's needs, and you kind of walk into helping you know address your own needs. And you're still a supervisor in Borstar, and that's good, right? Mm-hmm. But this tragic event also leads to something positive. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, so what I noticed um, there through our sector hallways, Sports Star was located in, um, in a Tucson sector. And there were, um, there was, they were keeping track of the DUIs that our agents were getting out, out in the field. And I, I saw like by quarter and it was increasing. And I was like, I was kind of distraught because I thought, doesn't everyone know my brother was killed by a drunk driver? Mm-hmm. Like it's almost like it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. Like, and I know that in the greater picture, that's not like a, that's not a reasonable way to think maybe or rational, but that's like my initial thought. Um, and then I kind of started asking around, like, what are we doing about this? Like within our, within our own organization and pieces fell together. It just so happened that um, Chief Ortiz was starting the, um, this DUI awareness program. I had sat down with him um 
for a few meetings to talk about what that could look like and incorporating Mike's story. And I was all in. Um, And that's kind of how the, this uh, Michael V. Gallagher project started and got out to a lot of agents, just really, you know, creating awareness, uh, you know, about our, our alcohol consumption and drinking and driving and how it's not worth it to get Mm. behind the wheel. Yeah. So it sounds like your dad was right. Right. He knew you had to just get back in the fight. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, for him in his mind, that meant, you know, just get back in, put the boots back on, put the mm-hmm. gun belt back on and get back to the border. But uh, you you took that and you ran with it and you developed this uh, um, DUI awareness campaign, the Michael V. Gallagher project. And uh, I can tell you, having gone through that, it was super impactful. It's probably the first time I ever uh, was introduced to, to Julie Gallagher. I think this is back in Laredo. 2013 2014 something yeah, like that which is where chief ortiz was uh, down in south texas trying to trying to stand this up mm-hmm. he was the deputy of rgb at the time yep. but uh anyway so you know a lot of folks maybe have have gone through that training that michael v gallagher training but now they have a better understanding of what the mm-hmm. impetus was and why it really is so important yeah. in 2013 uh, you move over to the law enforcement Safety and Compliance Directorate at CDP's Advanced Training Center in Harpers Ferry, West Virginia. Um, you become a supervisory border patrol agent, course developer, instructor. Can you tell uh, the audience a little bit about, first of all, what is the LESC, as we call it? And then uh, within that, what do you do at the LESC? So the Law Enforcement Safety and Compliance Directorate, we we do a lot of things there. Uh, it's, I always say it's where like all things use of force is housed. Um, for CBP, not just Border Patrol, but we're, we're OFO, we're AMO, and we're Border Patrol, and we train all three. Um, but that's where policy is written on our, our use of force, uh, force application tools. Um, it's where uh, technology, as it relates to use of force, is looked at and developed the latest and greatest mm-hmm. things CBP. That's one great thing that people I don't think always realize. CBP is really at the front of what is out there in terms of less lethal yeah. uh, devices and and technologies. Yeah. Um, but we train uh, instructors. We train uh, firearms instructors to go back out to the field, and that's those are the instructors that will qualify their people for their quarterly training. Same with less lethal. Yeah. Um, we have a pre-deployment department. We have a policy department. So, And what good. do you do within the LESC? So now I am a less lethal instructor. Yeah. So I train agents and officers from all over the country to be less lethal instructors. And it is a very, it's the most satisfying job I've had there because I feel so directly connected to the field and I, they come to us and they want to learn, they want to be the best instructors they can be. And they really come there, sit in those seats for three weeks. They soak up what you, what you give them and then they, they take it out to the field. So we talked a lot, we talked a little bit about, uh, this kind of, uh, these perfectly rounded edges between guardian and warrior. Um, and really I think, you know, the work of less lethal in, uh, instructors and the application of less lethal capabilities, um, is kind of at the forefront of that. So there's a, there's this conversation of, you know, could we use lethal force in certain instances and should we use lethal force in certain instances? And this is kind of this modernization of the way we look at policing. Um, so we're not saying by any stretch of the imagination that uh, a border patrol agent is less authorized to use lethal, lethal force today than they ever have been. But we just want to make sure that they have all the tools necessary to, to in other words, de-escalate uh, uh, an otherwise really, really bad situation uh, with the tools necessary. If they can't do that, mm-hmm. then lethal force is still obviously always going to be authorized. But, you know, kind of talk to me about, you know, how this modernization of less lethal really does apply to the what, how we do the job in the field and how we're perceived. Well, I, it's really, you know, we want them to recognize the opportunities that are there for them, where maybe in the past it wasn't always considered. Now it can be that, uh, well, could this person be experiencing a behavioral crisis, a mental crisis, or is this person just not listening to me? Do I have the time to assess this person. If you don't have the time, you don't have the time to, that's a big thing when we teach de-escalation. 
to drive home to to our people so that they can drive it home to their people back at their home bases. Okay. You're not always going to have the time to de-escalate. It's not always going to be appropriate. We will we never ask you to put yourself or your people in harm's way because you feel like you have to de-escalate a situation when it's not appropriate. And that to me, that's like that's the biggest thing I I try to I try to say on the outset. I, I talk about these white chairs because uh, so when I say uh, my last class, I said, you know, it, it's not always necessary. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. I don't know that. I can't remember the exact um, term, but it says something like de-escalation may not always be appropriate. Mm. And I tell them, I said, yeah, like at the end of the day, we don't want your people, their families to be in those white chairs. And when I say those white chairs, I'm talking about uh, funerals because yeah. that's that's where you sit. You sit in these white chairs. And as a less lethal instructor, we're trying to keep our workforce safe. Right. That is that is the most important thing. And that's why, I mean, I love being a less lethal instructor because I feel like I'm helping keep the workforce safe right. with what we're doing and the content that we're delivering. Right. And the, the interesting part is your work's not only reflected in an application as you train train the trainers if you will so you're training the trainers to go back and, and deliver the training to agents in the field but it's also reflected in policy right so that's why you talk about being there's a policy department in the LESC mm-hmm. and then there's this you know kind of let's call it tactical application of said policy really um, so without you know we can put policies on paper all day long and they can be written perfectly and yeah. the tent is perfect but until we actually sit down in a classroom uh, and walk through it with a certified instructor to become certified instructors, uh, it, it, there, there has to be a, a marriage of both. We have to understand the policy. Right. We have to understand the policy and enforce the policy appropriately. Yeah. That's, a, that's a huge part of what the LESC does, and I appreciate the uh, clarification yeah. uh, for not only what the LESC is, what it does, and then kind of what you do within that, within that house. So thank you. As a you know, as we talk about what's important now, it's the what's important now podcast. I like to give every guest an opportunity to kind of walk through maybe the three or four things that uh, are really important to you right now uh, for the captive audience to hear. I think what is uh, very important right now is uh, taking care of our agents, especially our agents that have been parts of these really traumatic incidents that are out in the field. Um, I've seen how my brother's, the first on scene agents were also my brother's classmates. And I've seen how they've suffered um, through in the years past that crash. And I can't can't help but think if they would have had more resources available to them, um, maybe it could have helped them navigate the grief and the trauma a little bit better. And in this last year, having watched the same thing happen to one of my former teammates, SBPA Cox. He was killed in very much the same manner as my brother out on the tribal lands. And his first responders were his, um, were Worcester teammates. And they, you know, they tried to actively save his life. They pulled him out of a burning car. They did CPR on him. They did everything they could to uh, help him. Um, And it just, so that that's going to stay with them. Mm-hmm. And my question now shifts to that those guys like how are we helping them? What are we doing for them? But since after watching what happened with Mike's in the aftermath, I was able to be more involved with what was happening with the first responders at um Agent Cox's crash. And that's when I was able to talk to some folks that are on the front line there with them about some available resources. Um, they found a great organization um, that could work with them and deal with them that specialize in post-traumatic um, the stress that you feel after after those really traumatic incidents and try to cut it off that at the legs of how it could manifest. Mm-hmm. You know, we see it manifest a lot with substance abuse. Um, and depression and if we can maybe help those guys uh, you know I think we're improving and the people are in place we have Dr. Corsu the clinician who was who was actively involved with them directly in the days after I don't know if they saw it but we were having conversations with him 
in the days after um, Agent Cox was killed. But it's really important to me, you know, that we don't repeat our mistakes, right? Like, let's make it better. Let's make our response to those first responders better than what it was for my brother. So thank you for that. I think uh, just to kind of encapsulate what I think I heard, uh, number one, resiliency, post-traumatic stress situations that occur to agents in the field. There's a lot of people that are impacted, but let's also not forget the folks who uh, were on scene they, that witnessed this, that, that, you know, gave blood, sweat, and tears literally to, uh, to try and save somebody who maybe wasn't even capable of being saved at the time. Um, so that's super important that there isn't a, there's a downstream effect uh, on, on those particular people. So make sure, you know, we are addressing uh, those people over time is important. And then secondly, obviously uh, doing a little more for our people in terms of suicide prevention action. Um, we talk, we talk a lot about suicide prevention, suicide awareness, uh, but maybe making sure as senior leaders in the organization, we are, uh, we have an action plan and we are fully uh, illustrating that action plan to the entirety of the work so that they know exactly where we're at through the help of Dr. Corso and others. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So to close out, it's customary that I ask you, um, we know we have our, our motto of honor first, oh. right? So I have to ask you what honor first means to you. So to me, honor first, staying focused uh, on, on our people and our mission um, maintaining our integrity and not forgetting about those that made the, the ultimate sacrifice in the line of duty. Honor first is like, if it ain't clear to you, it's clear to me, mm-hmm. right? Like that's been your career since, um, September 7th, 2nd, mm-hmm. right? You've been working your butt off to protect his legacy and yeah. never let us forget Michael. Yeah. I think that's it's done. Like there's no, nothing else, you know, that's what it's about. Um, Julie, thank you. Um, we look forward to, uh, hosting you for the rest of your time here and, uh, we're looking forward to great things, uh, from you continued great things from you, both in terms of, uh, advocacy for our people and the work that you're doing at the LESC. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Honor first. Mm-hmm.